Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to this week's episode of Pod's Own Country, the politics podcast from the Yorkshire Post. My name is Caitlin Doherty and I am your Westminster correspondent. It's been as busy a week as ever in Westminster. However, most of the attention has not been turned that way, certainly for the first half of the week, because COP26 has finally arrived in Glasgow after what seems like months and years really of talking about it the united nations great climate change summit has finally arrived in the uk now this should have been last year this should have been october november 2020 but as we all know lots of things last year got cancelled and this was no exception world leaders were gathered in the scottish city at the start of the week and now as we come towards the end of the first week of this fortnightly event the main people left behind are the negotiators, the climate change experts left to talk and get into the real nitty gritty of the subject matter. Now, we'll have more on COP as uh, as the fortnight progresses. But for this week's episode of the podcast, I chatted to two people from Yorkshire who know a lot about this. The first is Daniel Willis, who is a climate campaigner for the charity Global Justice Now. I spoke to him while he was at COP, while he was in the conference centre, and he had a lot of positive things to say about what has been achieved already, what we might manage to get hold of by the end of the fortnight, and also how all of these changes could affect our region. I also spoke to Professor Andy Goldson, who is the director of the Yorkshire and Humber Climate Commission, who have been working towards net zero in Yorkshire for some time now, as well as, you know, as the country tries to reach that goal as well. I hope you enjoy this week's episode and I will speak to you again next week. Thanks so much. I am here with Daniel Willis, who is at the COP26 summit in Glasgow. How are you today, Daniel? I'm good, thank you. Uh, it's a very, very busy few days. Uh, everything's uh, quite sort of chaotic and, and busy here, but uh, yeah, it's been really kind of exciting uh, and good to see everything that's going on. Can you um, tell us why why you're at COP? Um, what sort of role you're playing there and what, what you've seen so far? What's going on, really? Uh, so I work as a, a climate justice campaigner for an organisation called Global Justice Now. 
Uh, we're a, a civil society organization uh, with kind of membership across the UK, and we do a lot of campaigns on economic justice with uh, sort of allies around the world. Um, and we have a, an official kind of observer status, so we're allowed to come in, uh, see some bits of, of what's going on, sort of kind of high-level meetings. Uh, but we're also here really to kind of take part in some of the protests. Uh, and also there's a big kind of civil society uh, counter summit that takes place alongside each COP. So we're quite heavily involved in that and organizing kind of sessions to, to educate people and uh, talk to them more about what environmental justice really means. How how did you find yourself getting in, involved in environmental justice? I mean, it's the sort of thing that I suppose it's only an idea that's come into people's minds really over over the last few years. Um, what what does it mean to you, and how have you found yourself at COP? <laughs> that's a good question. Um, so, I mean, for me, I think uh, when we think talk about environmental justice, it always seems, I think, from the UK. Uh, quite like a distant type of issue. Um, people, it calls to mind kind of, you know, developing countries in the global south and uh, how to stop the effects of climate change and kind of countries that may be vulnerable to floods and, and high temperatures. Um, but for me, it's, it's always been kind of, uh, it's part of, a, I suppose, of a, a political education. Uh, I grew up uh, in Yorkshire. I've got family from the northeast of England, uh, from mining communities uh, up there. Um, and for me, kind of climate justice is, is much more about uh, the communities who are kind of impacted by these big economic decisions and, and what that means for their lives kind of going forward. And, and that sort of connects really our local communities with, uh, with the kind of uh, countries in the global south. Uh, so, for instance, you know, um, you've probably heard the, the government talking a bit about this kind of idea of a, a green industrial revolution and a, and a hope to invest in green industries, which could provide huge benefits for Yorkshire. Um, but the, at the same time, it also means potentially the kind of the closing down of, of uh, you know, industries which are maybe not as environmentally beneficial, uh, you know, like coal mines or also, you know, big power stations like uh, Drax. Um, and for me, the, the kind of the really important part is uh, is making sure that we live in a kind of sustainable way that's good for the planet, whilst also not penalizing, uh, you know, the workers who work in those places and ensure that they're, um, you know, they're offered kind of opportunities to, to retrain or move into other jobs that, that are going to be part of the future. Do you think that is something that the government will will be able to sort of make peace on? I mean, obviously, it does seem like quite a big deal at the moment. I mean, so many jobs, especially in our area, are in really, really heavily industrialised and really highly emitting industries. Do you think this is probably a tension that's going to get tighter before people do find themselves in these new green jobs that are going to transform the future. Well, I think really the the, the one big thing with with this kind of transition is that it, it will cost a lot of money. Um, you know, to to help people transition into green jobs, it requires kind of upfront costs for retraining. Um, it you know it requires kind of money invested in British wind and solar power. Uh, to develop those industries um, and, and a lot of that does need to come from government uh, you know we know that we're not asking for an insignificant amount of money in terms of that investment uh, but you know the the long-term effects will, will cost people and families a lot lot more um, you know we're, we're talking at this COP about ideally limiting global warming to one and a half degrees uh, some analysis suggests that you know current plans would set us on for more than two and a half and those effects will 
will have a huge impact, uh, not just all around the world, but also in Yorkshire as well. Uh, and realistically, some of those jobs and industries will disappear over that time anyway. Uh, so really, it's about preparing for the future and making sure that people just aren't left with nowhere to go in 20 or 30 years time. Um, uh, and yeah, but it, it, it takes sort of good, you know, good management uh, and, and preparedness, uh, which we, we sort of don't feel like we've fully seen from the government so far. What do you think 20 or 30 years time from now looks like? I mean, there's a lot of talk of people increasingly using electric cars and boilers being swapped out for heat pumps. These changes that are going to have really tangible and visually noticeable effects on on our daily lives. But as well as those, um, you know, you're obviously really heavily involved with, um, you know, climate campaigning and all these negotiations. What else do you think that people people will see and how will their lives be different in 20 to 30 years time as a result of uh, the attempts to tackle climate change? Well, I think one of the really exciting things that's kind of happened in the the climate movement in recent years, and and one of the reasons I've got more involved, is that I think uh, people have started talking less about what we can't do and more about what life might look like sort of in a positive way. Um, so, so yes, there's a lot of talk about, you know, in 20, 30 years, we might be all driving electric cars. Um, but some of the ways that electric cars are, are produced are themselves not that good for the environment uh, and for communities who kind of are impacted by them. So a, a more sustainable alternative might be good electrified public transport across you know, much of the country. Uh, and like I say, as someone who's spent a lot of time in Yorkshire as part of my life, uh, good well-connected public transport across the region would be massively beneficial. Uh, There's certainly some kind of parts of Yorkshire that miss out from that at the moment. Um, You know, it could also entail sort of different approaches to how we work and how we live. Um, You know, the past 18 months have shown us that a lot of people don't necessarily need to commute to work. They can work from home. Um, you know, probably a few of us, uh, and I include myself in this, have you know got different priorities in terms of their work-life balance now. Um, so, you know, when we're talking about thirty years' time, uh, you know, the 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 vision that we like we should be talking about is you know us being able to spend more time at home with our families, uh, you know, doing more kind of forms of uh, sustainable work, maybe like care work uh, or education, working in the community. Uh, and, and hopefully being you know, better connected with each other through, through transport uh, and you know, by sort of doing other more sustainable things that, that won't stop us from doing the things we like, but uh, will just help us live in a more sustainable way. We are speaking on uh, Wednesday afternoon. I think it's fair to say that a lot of the world leaders have uh, left Glasgow now or will be leaving quite soon. Um, there's still more than a week left of COP and a lot of people would hope a lot more promises and pledges to come. Do you think, what are you expecting from this COP and do you think that there is a lot more to come or do you think that, you know, it might now be a bit more difficult now that, you know, the Prime Minister Emmanuel Macron and Joe Biden have left? (laughs) Uh, Well, the World Leaders Summit is something that's quite new at the start of COP, uh, and I think a lot of people would probably think that today is the day that things really begin rather than end. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of hard work to happen between uh, negotiations and, and delegations from different countries. Uh, we're, we've had a lot of announcements today on climate finance, 
you know, the developing countries in the global south want a lot more climate finance from the global north because there was an agreement made 11 years ago that that would happen, but it's, it's been delayed. Um, there's negotiations on energy policy. They're gonna, we're going to see more announcements tomorrow where uh, we're hoping to see more countries commit to stop finance, financing coal and gas projects. Um, and I think one of the big things yet to come, really, which we've not seen at all, is the big demonstrations and the big kind of alternative solutions that will be proposed over the weekend. So there's a, a big uh, global day of climate action uh, on Saturday, the 6th of November. Um, there's big actions and marches taking place in uh, Glasgow and London, but also in Leeds, York and Sheffield. Um, and although that's not part of the official negotiations uh, and the COP, it is a kind of now routine uh, yeah, part of the, the process uh, and we'll see kind of movements, youth strikers, uh, organisations from all over the world come together in, in that day uh, and it'll be a, a good day I think to kind of to talk about some of these alternatives but also protest what we, we've not liked so far. If uh, you were to tell the people living in Yorkshire that one thing, one aspect of their lives that might change as as a result of this COP, I mean, in Paris, obviously we had the Paris Agreement and that's dictated a hell of a lot of government policy around the world since. But how do you think life may change for people as a result of this summit? And how long do you think that will come, that will take to come into effect, really? Um, that's a, yeah, it's a difficult question. Um, I think from what we've we've seen so far, there's been a lot of emphasis, like I say, on finance. Uh, there's also been a lot of talk about um, a, a kind of deforestation and trying to protect forests. Um, so th those things probably won't have that much of a tangible effect on, on people in Yorkshire immediately. Um, I, I think one of the key things about this being in, in uh, Glasgow this year and with the UK hosting it is is raising awareness. Um, hopefully, this action on, on Saturday will make people reflect on more of these issues a, a lot more, and that by the time the next COP comes around next year, uh, you know, people will, will have a better sense of what's going on with the process uh, and will be immediately be more engaged, because these kind of international discussions are really important for, for achieving uh, justice. Um, one, hopefully, one kind of big thing that we'll see not, not so much from COP, but in the coming weeks, is the government uh, kind of uh, making uh, you know, good on some of its promises uh, and providing kind of more uh, funds and, and projects for kind of uh, properly green jobs in Yorkshire and, and across the north uh, as part of you know, the levelling up agenda. Um, I would say that, that that conflicts potentially with kind of what's uh, happening at the Drax power station, where the government's talked a lot about it being a, a green project uh, but we, you know, we've not seen much benefit from that so far. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's really key, really, that um, you know people across the region uh, start to think more closely about these issues, but also think about how uh, you know local things that happen in in Yorkshire as well do have a, an international impact. Uh, and you know, w with that uh, kind of in mind, we'll, we'll be able to uh, you know put forward a, a more positive vision for climate justice in the future. Daniel Willis, thank you very much. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Glasgow. Great, I will try. Thank you. Professor Andy Goldson is a professor of environmental policy at the University of Leeds and a director at the Yorkshire and Humber Climate Commission. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. You're welcome. 
Thank you. Um, I was just wondering if, um, on a very basic level, first question, what is the Yorkshire and Humber Climate Commission and how do you fit in uh, to COP this year? Is there anything that you are doing to market or anything that you would like to see? So, yeah, of course, the, the commission is an independent body uh, established at the regional scale to draw together all of the key climate leaders in the region, uh, whether from the public sector, including the 22 local and combined authorities across the region, uh, or the NHS, the Environment Agency, universities, that kind of thing. Uh, the private sector, including transport, uh, housing, energy, uh, water, farming, food, retail, uh, and the third sector, including people like the CBI and the TUC uh, and pressure groups, including Friends of the Earth uh, and others. And, and the aim is to draw all of these key actors together to develop a consensus on what we at the regional scale in Yorkshire can do about climate change. Uh, and we are preparing a climate action plan, which is being launched at the same time as COP26 uh, in, in the region, and then will also be presented to COP26 uh, late next week. So uh, our role in COP26, we don't have a formal role, but the emphasis of this COP is very much on how to deliver climate action, uh, including at what they call the sub-national level. Uh, and in the end, all climate action has to take place somewhere. Uh, and we're um, putting forward a plan for what Yorkshire can do. As a region of five and a half million people, we're you know bigger than um, many countries, and yet we don't have a regional approach. Uh, and we want to facilitate collaboration across the region so that we can build our capacity for ambitious climate action. So that's what we're all about. Um, I'm obviously not expecting a really detailed rundown of the plan if you're uh, revealing it in a big event next week. Um, but what sort of things can we expect to be in that document? I think over the last couple of years, people have really started to see climate change and climate change policy in particular um, affecting their daily lives more you know maybe they're getting an electric car maybe they're buying a new house that's got a heat pump in it rather rather than a boiler what what sort of things can people expect to see from from this well so there are three uh different sections in the action plan uh the first one is all around developing a framework for change across the region and this involves accepting that this is a real emergency and requiring us collectively to act as if it's an emergency with that level of urgency and ambition uh, then about developing a positive vision, thinking about how to include people in the process and make sure that this is fair, uh, how to um, build awareness and climate literacy, if you like, across organizations and businesses uh, and in the public. Uh, and then all about you know the nitty gritty of this, about how do we raise the finance and investment? How do we develop the jobs and skills? How do we monitor progress and, and make sure we're doing the right things? And then we also have a climate resilience section, which is all around what Yorkshire has to do to make itself more climate ready, if you like, and, and more resilient to the ongoing impacts of, of climate change, which we're already feeling quite acutely within the region uh, with flooding and extreme weather events happening on a more regular basis. Uh, and then lastly, all around net zero. Um, Yorkshire has a target to get to net zero by 2038 uh, and to show significant progress by 2030. And that involves massive changes in our homes, our buildings, our businesses, our transport systems, our energy systems, and so on and so on. And so the action plan runs through all of the practical things we need to do uh, to get there too. Um, so yeah, it's designed to be a, a, a kind of a, a stepping stone, I suppose, between having a target and actually getting on with the, 
the ambitious actions that we need, but we need a plan so that we do that in a, a sensible, joined-up way and, and with the appropriate level of urgency. Are, are there any particular challenges facing this region? Uh, I'm not going to say uniquely because, you know, there are lots of issues all over the country, but maybe things like, I don't know, we talk a lot about transportation and, you know, more people in Yorkshire rely on their car than they do in other areas of the country. It's also colder than perhaps, you know, the southeast, southwest or other southern regions. So people have their heating on more and probably end up using more energy. Are, are there, how do you think we tackle things like that that affect our region more uniquely? And what do you think those problems are? I think one of the big issues for Yorkshire is around our history. Uh, and, you know, Yorkshire knows all too well what a brutal energy transition feels like from the 1980s and what happened with the end of coal and the industrialization around that. And I think, you know, the scars from that still run deep. Uh, and it was done in a very brutal, top-down way. Uh, and the last thing we would want to do is to repeat any aspect of that. So we need to include people in the process and we need to acknowledge that some groups, some sectors, some um, businesses, some people, some communities will, will feel deeply threatened by this agenda. And that, you know, rather than ignoring them and doing it anyway, I think we should involve them in the process and find ways of, of supporting them to make that transition. So that this is something that's done, you know, by us and for us rather than to us, as it were. Um, so that's one thing. I, I think the other massive opportunity for Yorkshire is around the energy sector. We've always been a big energy producer and we've seen, you know, many of our large power stations switch from coal uh, to gas or to biofuels, uh, not without its controversies. And we've also seen a huge increase in offshore wind in the region with all of the jobs, especially in Hull and the Humber region, which which that's generating. And, you know, that's only just begun, really. You look at what's going to happen through the 2020s on offshore energy and it's just staggering the scale of it and it's a massive opportunity so we need to take that opportunity not just in that area but more broadly in the green economy you know to show how <clears throat> transitioning and, and adopting climate action can really help us to be be a you know a more prosperous thriving region and can help us to address some of the pockets of inequality that are still there um you know and the same can be said about our housing and our transport and you know, our, our nature and our, our national parks are, you know, world famous in the region and, and we love them. And, you know, we should be protecting nature at the same time as dealing with the climate emergency. And people generally love that idea. They love the idea of having more green space and more trees and more, you know, green infrastructure as such. So there are a few things which are particular to Yorkshire, but they're, I would say, mostly opportunities uh, rather than threats. An interesting point you made there that I'd not really considered about people maybe feeling threatened or like their their way of life is at risk as a result of the green transition is that something that your research has thrown up either with the commission or um in your academic role and how do you think explicitly we we go and tackle that is it something that's going to take a long time because a lot of these goals for various net zero and other pledges are coming up quite soon, you know, less less than a decade. Some of them are 2030. Honestly, I think that many of us in the climate world have not given enough emphasis to the downsides of the transition. We've been very keen to say what the upsides are. You know, Yorkshire can save two and a half billion pounds from its energy bill 
for example, that's a huge plus. And, and especially with higher energy prices and all of that, that's a massive social economic benefit. But we've been a bit slow to recognize and acknowledge that some people do feel threatened by it. And I think one of the, the wake-up calls we had is, is in France. You know, the Gilets jaunes movement was a, a backlash from drivers and all sorts of other people against carbon taxes, essentially. And I think that's, that's reminded us um, that we need to take people with us in this process. And, you know, if we don't do that, I think we'll get some way down the line towards transitioning. And then people will say, well, I'm not involved in this and I've never signed up to this. And why should I get behind it? Or even more so, I should, you know, stand up and fight this. And, you know, morally, it's the right thing to do to involve people and make it an inclusive process and a fair process. But practically, even if you're a kind of one-eyed climate change specialist, um, uh, you know, who's only concerned about climate change and the science is so scary that there are a lot of those people around. I think we, we have to accept that we need to be open and we need to at times slow down and engage and, and listen and understand people's concerns and reservations and, and offer more support. And, you know, in the short term, that may mean, we, may mean we're a bit slower, but in the medium to long term, I think it's, it's the right thing to do um, for, for all the reasons I just said. With your environmental policy hat on, then taking this point slightly further, um, are there any explicit promises that you would like to see from COP or from Parliament that you think could help uh, push this, help help get people on board? You know, there's been talk of maybe financial support or things like that. Do you think that that will be enough? Yeah, I mean, at the global level, I think the broad architecture of the Paris Agreement, which is the you know, the agreement leading into the Glasgow discussions is is broadly fine. What we need is more ambition and more delivery. Uh, and to do that, many developing countries need financial support uh, and they need it to be real. It's been pledged before and then not delivered and that's not good enough. Um, and, and we also need to ratchet up our ambitions. So the UK has got an ambition for net zero by 2050. The region has committed to do that by 2038. I think the region's commitment is is obviously more in line with the science and the, the level of urgency and ambition that's required than, than the national target. From national government, um, honestly, I think we need consistency and authenticity. And, you know, to see Boris Johnson flying to Glasgow when he could have got the train um, and to see Rishi Sunak giving tax cuts to frequent flyers one week and then going to climb the, the, the climate talks um, and uh, arguing for for more consistency from financial institutions, it just smacks of of inauthent- inauthenticity and a kind of hollowness. And we we need credibility, and we need real commitment, and we need consistency. And we're not getting that from national government at the moment. Um, I think in the region we can do a lot despite that lack of coherency and 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 so on from from national government in many cases. But there are times when national action is needed and. Frequent flyers, taxes is, is, is one aspect of that. But, you know, I think a big part of, of my thinking, at least, is that we can't wait for national government to get behind this. You know, the situation isn't ideal. Ideally, we'd have much more ambitious, much more joined up commitment from, from national government to enable us to act in the region. But, you know, that's not there. What are we going to do? You could bang your head against the wall for, for the remaining years of this parliament trying to get change. Or you could just get on with it anyway and show them that it's possible and, you know, argue for for greater support once you've shown that you can do some of it without them. 
it's it's Thursday afternoon. We're almost a week into this twelve day, two week long COP summit. It could be extended if there's good news that emerges. Do you think you are still going to be banging your head against the wall, as you say, by the end of it, or are you feeling optimistic? I think people people get depressed and anxious and um, angry when they don't know how to channel their energy into something positive. And I think I'm very lucky that I work in this area because on the one hand, you see the science and you think, this is really scary. We're on the edge of something disastrous here. And people can deny that and, you know, want to carry on as normal. But look at the science. It's, it's terrifying and we need to act now. Where I'm lucky, I think, is because I work in this area and because the Yorkshire and Humber Climate Commission has emerged, it gives you a way of channeling all of that into something positive and constructive. And that is vital. And it's not only vital for people like me, it's vital for our kids, who, who all the evidence shows are really, really anxious about this in massive numbers as one of a range of other anxieties. And, you know, they need to feel that there's something happening. And, and I think, I hope that the Commission is is catalyzing people and giving them an opportunity to to channel that into something more positive, as I've said. You know, will the COP make a difference? Honestly, for us on the ground, I don't think it will for a while. I think it will trickle down. And I think the key actors are, you know, it's an international and a national level discussion primarily in Glasgow, and we're a regional body. But what we can do is, is that bottom-up process of showing what we can do uh, showing what we can deliver, as I said earlier, sometimes despite national government rather than because of it, and you know, and bring about change that way. And we can collaborate with other regions and with cities within the region. But you know, we're doing our bit. We're trying to step up and show that we can make a difference, um, even under these circumstances. Of course, we'd love more help, and I hope that Glasgow generates more more support for th- things like us and what what we're doing. But um, even without it, we're going to get on with it. So you know, I won't be too depressed um, in terms of what we can do in the region. But, you know, for the world, it's crucial. That was going to be my final question, but there was just, there was something quite interesting that you said there, and it might be quite a nice way to look towards the future. You mentioned, you know, kids, young people being really impassioned about this. You are a teacher, you're a university lecturer, a professor. Are you seeing your students being more enthused about this than they have been in in years gone by and do you think that that could start to bring about change you know when those people who are currently undergraduate students master's students even phd students make their ways into the world of work and become people of influence as it were i think pre-covid the school strikes and the youth action on climate change made a massive difference you know and i would it's slightly emotional blackmail, isn't it? But you would say to key decision makers of my generation, you know, look into your kids' eyes, look into your grandkids' eyes and tell them you've done the right thing and that you're on the right side of history. And if you can't do that, then I think you need to examine your conscience and say, did I do what was necessary? The science is screaming at you that we need urgent action. And if you're dragging your feet or denying this or pulling in the wrong direction, then you're part of the problem. And, and that's that's not good enough these days. Um, I think we're seeing many, many more students look, taking environment climate related courses. We're seeing climate change being mainstreamed into other courses, into business or economics or 
you know, um, all courses across the university with, of, of Leeds, we're trying to integrate climate change uh, into all of them and, and giving people those skills. But we're, we're also creating expectations that they can make a difference. Um, and I think that if it carries on as it is, you know, we, we, we run the risk of those expectations turning into disenchantment and anger. And I think that that has a, an opportunity to, you know, create a real generational divide in the country between, you know, the complacent older people who've caused the problem and the, the younger people who want to change it but are, are being held back or blocked in some way. And that is dangerous, you know, and we've seen that in other areas, I think, in the UK in, in recent years. And, you know, we ought to be coming together and pulling together. And I think it's beholden on the older generation to say, OK, we're in those positions of influence now. Let's use that positively. As I said at the start, I think um, it's 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 a, an obligation to us to do the right thing. And more and more of us are, but many of us are not. And we need to win those over. Professor Andy Goldson, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Pod Zone Country. If you have any topics you think we should be covering or any stories you think that we should be digging into, please get in touch with me over email on caitlin.doherty at jpress.co.uk. I'll speak to you next week.